All right, everyone, welcome to the Straight Talk Physio Podcast with your host, Dr. Andrew Junek and Dr. Craig Giambattista. On today's episode, we're going to talk about how physical therapy can help to treat or reduce the pain that you experience from a disc bulge or a disc herniation. Uh, We're going to talk about what a disc bulge or a disc herniation is, who these uh, things happen to, why the pain is so awful and it inhibits some of the things that you want to do during your daily life, and then how do we know that somebody has a disc problem when they come into the clinic, and lastly, what is it that we do to help treat someone who is experiencing disc pain? Um, So Craig, I'm going to let you get started on this topic. I think this is a pretty loaded one. There's a ton of information to cover here. Um, Definitely not enough to cover in one specific uh, or one, one episode here. Uh, but I'll let you get started on explaining what a disc herniation or a disc bulge is. Right. So, yeah, let's start with the basics here. Um, and we will just kind of talk about what components make up the disc. And then we'll try, um, you know, verbally to do the best uh, anatomy job we can. So the disc is made up of these kind of concentric rings um, that are made of, they're kind of like a fibrous and they're collagen-like. And they kind of orient around this thick gelatinous center. Now it is all one thing. It's not like there's a separate piece of gelatin and these separate, you know, rings around it. Um, but that, that is kind of a nice way to think about it. Um, on the top of the disc, it's, there's, it's attached to the vertebral body on top of it and below it, it is attached to the vertebral body below it. Um, so as you can imagine, it's not like a separate thing. It's not like we can um, just kind of slide the disc out between the vertebrae. It is. It acts as a dynamic structure that does um, hold the two discs together. And as you can imagine, it can move around a lot, and its job is to move around. So the problem is, is when you know some of that anatomy gets a little bit messed up. So I'll try to paint this picture of what the discs look like for you. So if we're looking. Like uh, if we're standing over a disc looking right down on top of it, I typically tell people to picture uh, your standard donut with a hole in the middle of it. So the standard donut is kind of those concentric rings we were talking about. They're fibrous. They're, they're a little bit stiff, but they still move. And then on the inside or in the donut hole, picture like, uh, like, a, like a jelly or like a nice compote or something like that. Um, so that would be like the annulus or the center that we're talking about. So when we use the term uh, like a disc herniation or a disc bulge, we can kind of grade it. And we'll, we'll use our donut example. It's a little bit more complicated than this, but I think visually, if we can, you know, if we can visualize that, it tends to, it tends to be helpful. So to have, uh, it, it kind of goes in severity. So we will talk about the least severe and then kind of move our way to the most severe. So just your standard, uh, you know, bulging disc, picture that jelly in the middle of the donut just tends to migrate a little bit in one direction. So now it's pressing on that inner surface of the donut and it's kind of working its way out. It doesn't go very far, but just enough to where it can cause a little bit of irritation. So that's on the low end. Um, you know, one step higher is the disc protrusion. So now that jelly has moved a little bit farther and now it's creeping up to the outer rim of the donut. It hasn't really busted through anything, but now we've gone from our nice center jelly spot. It is, it is working its way out to that outer layer of the donut. So that, that's kind of step two of four here. So on the more serious end is our disc, it's called an extrusion. So now that, that jelly in the middle has made it to the end of the donut and now it's starting to 
crack through the end of the donut. So it's starting to spill out. Um, and then our last one is the, the most serious one, as you can imagine, is it's called a, uh, like a sequestered disc or a disc uh, sequestration. I might be pronouncing that wrong. So we might, we might need a pronunciation check there. But now the outer layer of the donut has it's busted apart. And now that inside jelly part is kind of spilling, spilling outside of the disc. So different levels to it. Um, and I think the, the most important part here, what to think about is where does the disc, where is the disc innervated? So where is the, the, the part that the disc is giving the information to the brain to say, hey, something bad is happening here. And it is just the outside of the donut. So not towards the middle where the jelly is, not the inner layer of the donut hole, but all the way on the outside. So as you can imagine, the farther the jelly goes out, the closer it gets to that nerve. And as you can guess, likely the more irritated it's going to be. So anything else to add there, Drew? Yeah, I think that um, from an MRI or imaging standpoint, when we get images of discs and it shows that they're herniated or um, shows that there's some disc degeneration, I think pretty much what you mentioned there, that the outer part of the disc is what's innervated. The inner part, however, you can have different changes happen there and it may be providing no symptoms at all. So people can have disc degeneration and this is where a lot of these like studies and some of the different things kind of get confused when patients, you know, look at their MRIs or their imaging and, uh, you know, a provider might say, hey, everything looks pretty good. But then when they, the patient reads the image, it says, whoa, disc degenerative changes at this level and this level and this level. Mm -hmm. And then patients are saying, whoa, I have all these problems. How can you say my MRI looks good? Um, however, some of those changes are normal. And we're going to get into some of that a little bit later. Um, some of the other things that I wanted to touch on too, I usually use the exact same model that you described in practice. The other thing that I talk about is discs can typically tend to herniate in uh, different directions. So discs can herniate anteriorly, which are a little bit more rare. So that means they move forward um, towards the front of the body. Uh, what that basically would be, we usually will see that after somebody is pregnant um, or delivers or carries a little bit lower for a long period of time, or a disc can herniate in a more forward direction. Um, you can also see them herniate completely backwards or what we call posterior, where somebody might experience symptoms on both sides posterior laterally. So that means backwards and off to one side. So this is most common in people who have symptoms maybe on one side of their body versus the other. And then also laterally where you can see somebody um, almost be a little bit, uh, I hate to use the term shifted, but appear as though um, their back is a little bit off center. Um, so when it comes to like a disc herniation or disc bulge, there's so much information that goes into this, so much background. But I think you hit like all the key points as far as, you know, the differences between the different types of disc herniations um, and then kind of using that jelly donut model to help conceptualize it. Uh, so with that being said, you know, Craig, from a clinical standpoint, do you see this pretty often? I would say I, I see it all the time. And I think the big talking point here is, you know, you kind of mentioned, who does this happen to? And I think a lot of people were experienced this type of pain um, kind of throughout their life. But the big thing I see at least, you know, at least a couple times a week guaranteed is someone will come in and say, well, I have back pain, but I have three blown discs. 
I hear that term all the time. And I say, well, you know, what do you mean by that? Can you like describe it a little bit in detail to me? And they're like, well, you know, I had back pain and it didn't get better. And I got an MRI and it shows that my discs are out. They just use the term out. My discs are out of place. Um, or they're, they're, you know, quote unquote, blown out, you know? And uh, so what I, I try to explain is that there, in some cases, this can be a little bit of normalcy. And I think if you listen to our episode with talking about x-rays, talking about MRIs, you've kind of heard us talk about the fact that there can be asymptomatic people that do have some of these changes. So before we go any further, I do want to just highlight on that it is really common to have a disc protrusion or a disc bulge and be asymptomatic. So the art or the, you know, the reason that you come to see people like us is we got to determine, is this a disc problem or maybe is this just a normal finding for your age group? And we'll get a little bit in like more detail on how we might do that later here. But the key takeaway home is just realizing how common it is. So not that we're a, you know, overly numbers based podcast, but just to throw some, some, some actual objective data at you real quick. So for a disc bulge, um, kind of starting at age 20, 30% of asymptomatic people, age 30, 40%, age 40, 50%, age 50, 60%, uh, age 70, 77%, age 80, 84%. You can see it just as, as you get older, the likelihood of this happening is super common. So that doesn't mean that every single person with a disc bulge has pain, um, that's why you got to come see a, you know, a provider trained in this kind of stuff. Um, so, um, so and again, I don't know, when, you Drew, say, when you say impt- asymptomatic, Craig, you mean no symptoms at all, right? They're walking around pain-free. So if they would have never had that imaging done, they probably would have had, you know, no idea. They would have been no wiser to what was going on. Yeah. Yep. All right. So I don't know. Is that something you tend to see a lot in your practice? I, I know you tend to work in the more, you know, the higher level people. Is this something that you think affects uh, you know, athletic people or the, you know, the quote unquote in shape people. You know, from how I, how I see things, disc herniations tend to be a little bit more prevalent in people who are between the age of ages of maybe like 20 years old and 50 years old. Um, and usually these people are a little bit more active. So I do see, I tend to see a lot of disc herniations. Um, it's pretty common in my population. Uh, some are symptomatic. Some people come to me and they have an MRI, um, but their symptoms don't tend to match uh, what is actually going on clinically, or their their imaging doesn't match what's going on clinically with them. Uh, so that's something where they may have an asymptomatic or um, a disc herniation that does not cause them pain, but the MRI may have picked that up. So it's really important that we sort that out as clinicians. Um, for our patients, because if we start treating everybody as if they have a disc herniation, but they actually don't, um, then things become a little bit muddy and people don't get the results they're looking for. So with that being said, uh, some of the symptoms of a disc herniation, these are the things that, you know, we as clinicians that we're looking for uh, when we're doing our screening, when we're talking to you on the phone, or when you come in for your very first appointment, we ask you, we feel like, you probably feel like we're interrogating you. But this information is what basically helps us establish whether or not we're dealing with a disc, we're dealing with spinal stenosis, we're dealing with a spondylolisthesis, we're dealing with clinical instability or structural instability, all these different things, or if we're dealing with something more serious. So the symptoms of a disc herniation. Typically, patients will complain with pain during sitting. This can be 5 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes. Usually they'll say that standing actually feels better for them than sitting. 
Um, usually patients who have a disc herniation will also complain of morning pain and morning stiffness. So they'll say, when I first wake up, it takes me about 15 or 20 minutes to get moving. Usually by the time I take a shower, um, I'm up, I'm moving around, I feel a little bit better. But that first 15 to 20 minutes, it's hard to straighten up, stand up nice and tall. The pain is a little bit worse. It's Everything just feels tight and stiff and doesn't allow me to move. Um, some of these patients, if the disc herniation is very fresh or just happened, very acute, uh, they'll experience pain with coughing and sneezing. Transitional movements are usually very uncomfortable. So going from sitting to standing, getting in and out of the car, rolling over in bed, movements like that tend to be very sharp, um, can almost take your breath away. Uh, there can be pain in the leg. The pain can go all the way down into the toes. Sometimes it can stop at the hamstring. It can go down the side of the leg. There's a number of different pain referral points uh, that kind of go beyond the, the scope of this podcast. You can experience numbness, tingling, burning, uh, that can be locally in your back. It can also go down into your leg. Muscle weakness, you can have pain with bending over. And usually the pain with bending over, people will tell me that that's the worst of all the things that they can do. Um, usually tying their shoes is very uncomfortable. Uh, just going to do something simple is pick something up off the ground. So we're talking about very, very simple, simple tasks uh, that cause you to experience extensive amounts of pain and discomfort. Is there anything else that you typically see, Craig? Or, um, you know, do you, can you explain to us why it is so common to experience pain with these simple tasks? Yeah, the only thing I'd add on to the symptoms, um, and I, I think it's more just surprising to patients than anything else, is it's sometimes not uncommon to have a bunch of leg pain and no back pain. Yeah. I would put that yep. on the more like, you know, our sequestered end of like severity, the higher end of severity. Um, but sometimes it can be a little bit confusing to be like, hey, it feels like my leg is on fire, but my back really isn't that bad kind of deal. Yeah. So I would say if, if that is something you've experienced in the past, it's likely been due to, you know, one of our higher levels of irritation, but not completely out of the question. Um, yeah. and you, you brought up really something great earlier is why is it so common to have pain with you know, and it can feel like almost doing anything when your back initially hurts. And the, what I tend to explain to patients is that we, we have injured uh, a place that is very sensitive. So that, that outer layer of nerve endings on the disc we talked about are, are very sensitive to change and for good reason. So our spine is a very important thing. It protects our spinal cord, which is part of our central nervous system, which protects our brain. And, you know, our brain's main job is to keep itself alive. So it likes to, it likes to feel as safe as humanly possible. So first and foremost, we are, you know, we're messing around with an area that tends to be, you know, hypervigilant about what's going on for very good reason. Also, it's not like, it's very difficult to truly protect your spine. So for example, if you hurt your shoulder, you can put your arm in a sling. If you hurt your wrist, you can put a splint on it, no problem. If you sprain your ankle or if you break your ankle, you can put a boot on your ankle and we can basically minimize as much force as we need so we can put it in a great place for it to feel better and kind of heal on its own. Um, yep. Unfortunately, the spine isn't really one of those things where that can happen. Um, and most, I would say most, if not all movement that we produce has some spine component to it. 
So as you can imagine, if you have an area that is, you know, a little bit irritated in the spine and pretty much everything you do is going to involve some kind of spinal movement, we're kind of, we're kind of aggravating that area a little bit. I, I just, and that doesn't mean it's not healing. I kind of describe it to people as like, if you, if you had a, a cut, like a paper cut right on the top of your knuckle here, that's in a highly movable area. The cut is constantly healing, but as we're moving our finger, it might irritate it because we're, we're moving an irritated area, but that doesn't mean things aren't getting better. I, I use that example with the spine a lot. Um, is, there, is there anything else you, you have to add there? Any other things you like to use education-wise? Yeah, even when you put a brace on your spine, you're still using your spine. Your spine. Yep. You know, people who use belts to kind of keep their core nice and tight, you're still using your spine. Um, people after back surgery, um, you know, again, back surgery is a very rare part or a rare thing that we see. Uh, the ultimate goal is always to avoid back surgery uh, due to outcomes, but that's a whole different podcast uh, where they'll put somebody in a very like solid or stiff brace so that they can't bend or move their spine very, very much. But it's still doing a very minimal job at actually controlling the movement at the spine. You simple movements like rolling, going from sitting to standing, whether you think you're maintaining a neutral spine or you're not, your spine is still flexing and extending. Um, there's been some studies out there that have shown that, um, can you actually maintain a neutral spine when you squat? And the answer is no, you can't do it. Um, your spine is still going to flex at some point, it's still going to extend at some point. It doesn't actually stay neutral. Now, when you look at it with your eyes, are you maintaining neutral? Yes. But when they put motion sensors on those different vertebrae and they watch your spine move in those different directions and they put it under, um, some very highly powered equipment, they're finding that there's quite a bit of flexion and quite a bit of extension happening during these movements. So there's no way for you to actually move around and not use your spine at all. Even with a hip hinge, um, your spine is still getting some level of flexion um, or extension. So I think that's one big thing that you kind of touched on is your spine is integral to every single thing that we do. Um, as long as we're moving, our spine is a part of that. Um, and that's why so many people who have back pain feel that it's so debilitating because it's actually inhibiting, you know, just the very simple and basic things that they're doing on a daily basis. Um, you know, and that kind of leads us into a segue of how do we know it's a disc problem? Like, how do we know that's what we're dealing with from a provider standpoint? Um, you know, I think really you need to see somebody who definitely understands how to ask the right questions when it comes to spine pain. Because I think the questions that we ask are what really helps to differentiate it. Um, the nice thing about spinal conditions is if we're, and not to get off on talking about other types of spine conditions, but, you know, to give you guys an example, disc pain and spinal stenosis, which is the narrowing of the spinal canal around a nerve root um, or the spinal cord itself, have completely opposite presentations. So for example, someone with true disc pain will have pain with sitting. Someone with spinal stenosis will actually feel great when they're sitting. Um, someone with disc pain will feel better in standing. Someone with spinal stenosis will not be able to stand for a certain period of time without their symptoms getting worse and needing to sit down. Um, and the same goes for a number of other back pain pathologies. So the questions that we ask are extremely important in helping us uh, kind of sort out whether or not we're dealing with a disc, uh, spinal stenosis, a spondylolisthesis, a muscle strain, uh, a facet problem, all these different things that could be the, could be the, the source of the issue. 
And then from there, the other way that we know that we're dealing with this problem is during our examination. So we ask you all these questions and those questions actually lead us down a certain path. From there, we do our examination. What we'll actually find is that you'll respond to a specific set of movements in a specific way. Um, you know, kind of taking you guys through that is kind of out of the scope of this, but essentially if we're finding that there's a direction that your spine moves that makes you feel better, um, it is advantageous for us to continue to move you in that direction repeatedly because your exam should continue to improve over time. If your exam is not improving, then we may have the wrong direction or potentially the wrong diagnosis. Um, but those, that directional specific examination that, uh, certain providers will do is very well linked to improved outcomes if you respond to a specific direction. So that's why during our exam, we may ask you to do something 10, 15, 20, or maybe even 30 times um, because it could be showing us that we found a direction that is valuable to helping you improve uh, the condition that you're experiencing. Anything to add to that? I would say the biggest part, at least when it comes to knowing, is this a disc problem? And I try to educate my patients the most on it. It, it all needs to add up. So uh, when we're talking to you, you know, answering our questions the right way, it has to make sense. Or how you're describing our, your symptoms, it has to make sense. And then as we do our exam, it's got to line up with our exam. There's got to be some movement patterns that make sense to what you're saying and what we're thinking. And then finally, then we're like, okay, maybe if we got to add imaging, and we can do that, you know? So it has to be the culmination of everything. So, and there is strong research behind this that the sole variable of, so the size of a disc herniation or the amount that it can regress or be absorbed back into the body, it can't predict clinical outcomes. And that doesn't mean that it's not important. That just means that it's not like there's one sole single thing that we can say, you know, if A, then B. It's not quite that simple. As much as we would like it to be, it's, it's way more complex. So when I at least see patients for the first couple of visits, my goal is to say that the whole picture needs to make sense. It's not just, um, you know, you come in and your MRI says that you have a, you know, a mild disc bulge at L4, L5. That doesn't mean that, you know, you're having back pain for that exact reason. Um, right. Earlier, we talked about how common it, as an imaging finding it is. So with that in mind, you need to find a provider that's going to put the whole picture together. So could that really common imaging finding be the reason for your pain? Absolutely, as long as everything else makes sense. Could that imaging finding just be a random thing that has happened as you've gotten older and has no, no contribution to your pain at all? Absolutely. So yeah. the, the hard part is the reason we have jobs, the reason you know, we're doing what we're doing is to help, help you sift through that stuff and, and kind of treat it correctly, if that, if that sort of makes sense. So I don't know if you have any... Uh, you know, anything else to add, um, or actually if you, if you're able to, can you, so how do we treat the disc problem? You talked about some of these like, you know, repeated motions, um, some other movement based stuff. Is there anything else that you typically tell people to do when you see them? Or are there any like hands-on things you might do? Or, um, just if you can kind of speak to what, what kind of options the patients have out there? Yeah. Um, so, my first visit is essentially trying to find the, the, the best way their spine needs to move in order to reduce their pain and improve their exam immediately. So day one, the ultimate goal is to get the patient relief and then give them the tools that they need to continue to heal while they're away from me. Okay. If I can do that, 
then that is a very, very successful first day. Um, on that first visit, I typically don't manipulate their low back. Um, the reason, reason being there is a, a chance that you could exacerbate symptoms or make things a little bit worse than they currently are. Um, and a lot of times patients can't even get into the manipulative position. Um, usually some of the positions that we will um, crack or, you know, do some of these quick, quick movements to, um, they involve you being kind of in a rotated position or kind of wound up. And sometimes that can be uncomfortable for a patient and patients should not be manipulated through pain. There's no reason for it. Um, it will just make things worse. So typically I will not manipulate on the first visit. Uh, if a patient comes back after the first visit and is feeling substantially better and their exam is improving and things are moving in the right direction, then I may manipulate their low back. Mm -hmm. But on the first visit, I don't quite, I need to get a better handle as to what's going on with their pain and understand their symptoms and how sensitive and irritable uh, their low back pain or neck pain, whatever it may be, actually is. Um, from a dry needling standpoint, I typically don't dry needle on the first visit either. Um, and most of the patients who are probably listening to this podcast will attest to that and say that it, usually I'll tell them that if I dry needle them on the first visit and something flares up, I don't know if the dry needling made them a little bit more flared up or irritable, or if the exercise that I actually sent them home with that was supposed to be reducing their symptoms aggravated them. Um, the other piece of our exam, uh, kind of like you were saying before, is we almost have to go in taking things, every, all the information that we found is a, with a grain of salt. Mm -hmm. So if somebody comes in with an MRI, we can't just assume, oh, they've had an MRI and it said they have a disc herniation, so this is a disc problem. We can't just assume that. Um, we have to take all the information into account before we say, yep, this is definitely a disc problem. So just because an image says that, we can't jump to that with our treatment. Our exam has to also guide us. And if you're letting an image guide your exam, then a lot of times things get missed or things can go the wrong direction. Um, so what we, what we really find is that if we can start to take away some of the aggravating factors, um, modify some of the activities that the patient is doing, teach them how to sit with a different uh, posture and improved posture for a period of time, if we know that that's going to decrease the symptoms, um, you know, taking away some of the other habits that the patient may have, um, if a patient, you know, sleeps in a certain position and we know that's aggravating things, uh, we might have to tweak that depending on the exercises that they do, um, at the gym, we may have to tweak some of that. So just modifying the activities, uh, adding in some of those repeated movements that we know are going to help improve the symptom, potentially looking at manipulation further on down the line and dry needling on down the line. I think those all in combination tend to help treat any sort of disc problem and then with a slow graded return to activity kind of on the back end um, without having people jump right back into doing things that we know will aggravate the symptom. Um, those are kind of the things that I use in the clinic kind of all together to help facilitate healing. Is there anything that you would say that you use as well? I tend to use the same stuff that you mentioned because I think it's, it's a successful way of, you know, kind of going about it. Um, just to, just to build on it a little bit. I, I'm a big repeated motion guy. Um, I found that it's worked in my practice. Um, so I tend to do that a lot as far as the, the hands-on stuff, you know, our dry needling, um, our manipulation. I, I typically tend to tell people that when we have uh, maybe a disc problem, 
one of the big things that has happened, it has now made us a little bit intolerant to movement. And by that, I mean, you, the body just, you basically don't like to move as much because it hurts. So if we can provide some sort of intervention, whether that be hands-on, um, you name it, um, my goal there is to, is to help improve that movement tolerance. Because I think that we know that movement is really good at helping fix stuff like this. So that's the number one thing for me. But I would say most important, um, and you, you just, you hit on this earlier, was modifying activity. So we know that we don't want to be on absolute bed rest, but we know that we also don't want to do things that are so aggravating that, you know, you've kind of put yourself in this vicious cycle of, I can't do anything because it hurts so bad. So that little guidance is, it's simple to say, to be like, oh, well, we just, we just need to modify your activity. No big deal. But to actually do it and find the right stuff is, is super yeah. challenging, especially if you have a job or you're taking care of kids or, you know, you're driving, you know, 40 miles to work every day. That becomes a very challenging thing to do. And I think that that is kind of one of the forgotten arts that, that people, uh, that, that, that tend to miss, I guess, or maybe not take as seriously. So any, yeah. any of those listeners out here with back pain or maybe a disc problem, that's that those little minor adjustments in some cases can, can make a huge difference. So um, I would say just make sure we're paying extra attention to that. So with that being said, um, I'm sure, like you said before, there are, you know, a million different things we could talk about with this, this whole disc stuff. Um, and, you know, we were considering a part two on this one. Is, do you got any big takeaways, anything, you know, just from this, this short little presentation here that, that you think people should take home with them? Yeah, I think, um, you know, a lot of times people hear the word disc herniation, they automatically assume like, this is, this is a big deal, I'm going to need surgery. Everybody knows somebody who's had a back surgery and it hasn't go well, gone well. Um, but I'm going to be a hundred percent honest and say that everybody listening to this podcast will at some point experience a disc herniation at some point in their life. It, it's going to happen. Um, and it doesn't have to happen because of, you know, a one rep max deadlift. It can be, you were laying on your couch a certain way and then you got up and then you felt something happened in your back. And then all of a sudden coughing, sneezing, sitting, waking up in the morning, all these things are painful and you're moving about your day and things are hurting pretty bad. This is a normal part of life. Um, we treat this every single day. I would say far, far less than 1% of the patients that I have seen in my entire career actually go on to have surgery. Um, so surgery is very, very rare for this. Um, I think there was a point in time where surgery was a little bit more commonplace, but now I even see surgeons who are saying, Hey, you don't want me to do surgery on you. Um, which I think is great. I think we've finally started to come to a point where we realized that, uh, back surgery isn't the answer for this sort of thing. Um, so I think one of the key takeaways is everyone at some point is going to experience a disc herniation in their lifetime, but that does not mean you're going to need surgery. Most of the stuff can be managed conservatively. Um, pain also does not equal tissue damage. I think that is huge. Uh, a lot of times people think that because they have pain that a nerve is getting completely compressed and they're going to lose function and all this bad stuff is going to happen. Pain does not always equal tissue damage. Um, and that's a huge, huge thing to kind of let sink in, especially from this podcast. Um, and then also just because you have a disc herniation, it, it doesn't mean that you're going to have pain. So for those of you who do end up getting an MRI before you start to see a provider who's going to manage your pain, um, 
just because it says disc herniation at L4-5 or L5-S1 doesn't necessarily mean that that is the cause of your problem. It very well could be. Um, but if you see a provider and they say, you know what, your disc probably isn't the cause of your problem, don't be surprised. Um, because a trained provider uh, will do a very thorough examination and that thorough examination will reveal to them a little bit more of what the true cause of the pain is. Craig, what other key takeaways do you have for our, our listeners today? I think you hit the nail on the head with the, with the non-surgical route. Um, one thing just to build on that, and I think this is something that gets left out a lot, is the timeline for this kind of stuff. So yeah. I have a disc problem, like, do I need to be in rehab for two weeks, for two months, for two years, you know, like, what's, what's the timetable on this? Um, and I could say from, you know, personal experience, it, it is very, it's, it's variable. And that's why it's important to see a good provider because they might be able to give you a little bit more information on this. I've had people respond pretty well over the four to eight week mark. I have had some people respond in four to six months that I've seen on and off for that time, maybe once a month for a couple months. As far as if we're looking, um, Research-wise, if, if we're just looking at purely objective data for our disc protrusions, our extrusions, our sequestrations, our, our sequestered discs, you know, our higher-level stuff, you know, there's some pretty good data saying that we can do an MRI on you, you know, immediately when you have pain, and then if we look at it in nine to twelve months, there's a chance that 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 fragment of disc that was in your spine is now gone, or that that extrusion is now better, or that protrusion has has all but resolved kind of deal. So just knowing that, that, you know, we do have the capability to heal through this stuff, but it just might take a lot of time. I don't think people are told like, hey, you have back pain. I do believe this is a disc problem, but you know what? There is a potential that it could take up to four to six months. Now it might not with exercise. If you see someone that knows what they're doing, we can, we could take a good chunk out of that, but don't be fearful that, hey, you know, it's, you know, you've been consistently getting better, but if you have a little pain hanging on, you know, months down the road, that's typically normal. As we have seen in some cases, it could take even up to 12 months for some of the serious stuff yeah. to resolve. And even at that point, after that 12 months, you still have the potential to be back to 100%. But I think it's scary not you know, being uncertain over that period of time, especially if nobody ever tells you that. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I think it's important that you are seeing some results um, within a short period of time. You shouldn't be going to a provider and feel the exact same every single visit for a whole month. Things should be trending in a, in a more improved direction, um, but everybody's progress is a little bit different. I see some people who you know, get vast amounts of improvement in a very short period of time, and I see other people, as you mentioned, where, you know what, this is going to be like a four to six month, maybe six to eight month kind of deal, um, depending on how bad the disc herniation is and how the body is basically trying to help heal the process. So it really does depend. I don't know if you want to shed a little bit of light on, um, I know we have both experienced disc herniations in the past. Um, you know, I think sometimes think that medical providers who, who treat this stuff are immune or could never experience any issues like this. But uh, I know both of us have had our experience. So I don't know if you want to share a little bit about your experience um, and if you could leave a couple words of advice and I'll do the same yeah, let's let's end on a little story time. I'm I'm totally about that. Uh, so let's see. The year was what 2018, and I was I, I consider myself relatively in shape. You know, I like to you know I do my cardio. 
I don't miss leg day, you know, so I wouldn't consider myself on the, you know, the pro athlete level, but I wouldn't consider myself sedentary either. So just a little background on me. I was playing uh, recreation slow pitch softball. And oh, yeah, that, that'll moral, get you every time. The real moral of the story here is if I was a better athlete, this would have never happened. So <laughs> uh, playing first base and someone hits a ground ball to me, hits off the glove and then goes, you know, over to the, uh, you know, <laughs> and so I'm running to get the ball. I bend over to pick it up and I twist to throw. And then I kind of like crumble to the ground right there. Um, so the rest of that evening, back hurts pretty bad. I wake up the next morning, my left foot is completely numb and I have trouble walking down my hallway to, you know, to the bathroom. So call off work, um, you know, couldn't bend over, uh, couldn't really do much movement at all. Uh, so I kind of assessed myself and, and kind of went from there. And long story short, is I ended up having at least some degree of back pain for the next four months. So over, I would say the, the initial, you know, four, four to six weeks, I ended up getting to the point where I could move pretty well. I ended up feeling pretty good, but I, I just, I, I had a little pain and I, I progressed consistently over those four months. But the fact of the matter is, is I knew exactly how to treat myself. I knew exactly what I was doing, but it's still, it's still, there's like some time clock in for some of us that you just, you just can't beat. So had I not, known what I known, like, could I have had a micro disectomy? For sure. So Absolutely. it could have been yeah. a couple months down the road. And I could have said, you know what, I'm doing really good. But when I go to the gym, my back still hurts. Or if I take a really long car ride, and I get out, you know what, my back still hurts. I am willing to bet and this is not a shot at orthopedic or spine surgeons there at all. But I'm willing to bet someone would have took an MRI and said, you know what, there's a bulging disc, we need to get you into surgery. Uh, because you haven't responded in, in this, you know, this, this magical six to eight week period of time that everyone just kind of loves to use so much. So I would say that the, the timeline thing for me is, 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 you know, very close to me and something that I am passionate about and I strongly advocate for. So um, how about, how about you, Drew? How'd it end up for you? It looks like you're sitting there. Okay. So yeah, so, so far, so good. So far, so good. Um, actually the one I want to talk about, I've actually had two. Um, I think the people who follow me actually can recall the most recent one, but I want to talk about one that, probably fewer people know about actually, you know, more about than probably anybody. Um, so when I was back in physical therapy school, I was on my last clinical rotation. So I was just finishing up. I was at the end of the road and I remember I was studying for my boards exams and I was just sitting on the couch, uh, just had all these papers spread out all in front of me and doing the best I could to take in whatever I could for this big exam that meant everything. Um, I went to go from, sitting on the couch to standing up. That's it. There was no athletics involved. I wasn't deadlifting. I wasn't doing anything. I went from sitting to standing. And in that transitional, in that moment of transition, I felt this really sharp pain in my back. And all of a sudden I couldn't move. I just dropped down to the floor. Um, the next probably four weeks of my clinical rotation, uh, I had my instructor, who was a really, really high level therapist. Um, he was taking a look at my back. I had you taking a look at my back. Literally everybody was taking a look at my back, trying to figure out what it was I could do. I couldn't tie my shoes. I couldn't sit. I couldn't stand in one place. Um, coughing and sneezing was horrible. Uh, I remember hitting potholes in my car and just like bracing my core as tight as I could because hitting that pothole and that little bump that you get 
was so excruciating. Um, it was awful. Sleeping was tough. Um, I went through all the symptoms that a lot of people out there uh, probably are experiencing or have experienced at some point. Um, and I would also say that mine did not respond as quickly as a lot of my patients respond, which is great. I'm glad that my patients respond quickly, but there is a, there is a certain subset of people that don't respond as fast. And I just so happen to be one of those. Um, I would say mine probably lasted about three to four months, uh, before I was basically pain free and back to doing what I wanted to do. Um, so back pain really, I guess the moral of these stories is back pain doesn't care. It happens to everybody and anybody. And when it does happen, your timetable table for recovery is different. Um, and I would echo the same thing that you did, Craig. If I would have gone to an orthopedic surgeon in that time frame and said, hey, I've been having this really bad back pain. I haven't been able to tie my shoes for two to three months. Um, and I don't know what to do. I've been doing exercises and core strengthening and, you know, all these repeated movements. And I've, you know, at the time dry needling wasn't, wasn't that big of a thing, but I tried all these different things and, you know, I was still having some issues. Uh, I can guarantee you that somebody would have cut on me and decided to do some sort of microdiscectomy or some sort of fusion. They would have done something uh, that I didn't need. But I can confidently say that today I am 100% pain-free. I deadlift. I do all those things. So that's kind of the, the, the fun and interesting but yet like unknowing part of treating low back pain is, you know, there is some uncertainty with it. Um, but if you're seeing somebody who, you know, you know and trust and they know what they're doing, uh, then their quickest response isn't going to be surgery unless you have a very, very severe type of low back pain, which if they know what they're doing, they will be able to tell you, hey, this is very severe and something needs to be done about that. So I think at the end of the day, it's being confident in uh, your training and seeing somebody who has had the proper training to be able to take care of you, assess you, and get you going in the right direction. Yeah, and I think the important thing to realize of both of our stories is we were treating ourselves and doing movement-based stuff for that long period of time. Yeah. So had we not done that, I, there's, a, there's a high likelihood that I could have back pain today talking yep. to you. Absolutely, and it could have been chronic. Yep. So I want to encourage all you guys to go out there. If you do have back pain or you're dealing with any sort of disc issues, you've been told you have a disc herniation, you think you have a disc herniation, or you know someone who has had a disc herniation, uh, reach out to a professional who knows what they're doing. Um, you know, if you, all you're getting is just, you know, massage, like just a basic massage or just having your back cracked, um, and there's little assessment, go find somebody who's going to do a more thorough assessment um, and really get to the bottom of what's causing this. Uh, I want to thank each and every one of you for tuning into the Straight Talk Physio podcast. If you like what you're hearing, it would mean the world to us if you subscribe to this podcast and the Peak Physiotherapy and Performance YouTube channel. For more information about us, please check us out on Facebook at Peak Physiotherapy Performance and on Instagram at Peak Physiotherapy. For more information about Craig, you can follow him at Dr. Craig G underscore PT on Twitter and Instagram. If you have any topic suggestions, comments, or questions, then feel free to email us at thestraighttalkphysiopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for watching, and we hope you guys have an awesome day.